Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Conry, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. busy preparing to open our retail store, so this week we are taking a little break and reintroducing you to Dan Pomerantz of Rebel Grown. Dan was our first guest on the show in season one, and our conversation with him continues to be one of our most downloaded episodes. We caught up with him recently to learn how things are going as he heads into his second outdoor harvest here in Vermont, and where things stand with a social equity application. We'll also give a sneak peek into our new retail experience coming soon to downtown Burlington. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey there, and welcome back. Things are moving quickly now as we prepare to open our retail store at 163 Cherry Street in Burlington, Vermont. We feel very fortunate to be opening up in one of Burlington's beloved spaces, the former Lucky Next Door Cafe adjacent to Pennycloose. Both of these businesses are sorely missed in the community since Charles and Holly closed their doors for good at the end of last year. We are hoping to fill some of that void by providing first-rate hospitality and service to your health and well-being. If you've been following us on social media, you may have already heard that we are much more than a cannabis retail store. In fact, we'll be opening in early autumn without cannabis as we wait for our cannabis retail application to be approved by the Cannabis Control Board. What can you expect when you visit? Well, a fabulous lineup of herbal concoctions and elixirs to start— Plus, gourmet pantry items, including chocolate and maple syrup, of course, a self-service espresso bar powered by our friends at Brio Coffee Works, and a stylish array of unique tools and accessories to support your self-care routine. What we're doing is unusual in this space, and we are eager to introduce you to both our concept and the craft products that we'll be stocking on our shelves. So sign up for our newsletter at hi5vt.com. That's H-I-F-I-V-T.com to get the latest updates and to learn more about our brand partners. And we are hiring. If you are interested in a retail position focused on the exploration of self-care, please reach out to us at bewell at high5et.com. We would love to hear from you. All right. Speaking of brand partners, this week we are re-releasing Episode 7, our conversation with Dan Pomerantz from Rebel Grown. When we receive our cannabis license, Rebel Grown will be one of the first cannabis brands to stock our shelves. Dan was also our first guest on the show back in season one, and truth be told, the first person that I have ever actually interviewed. (laughs) Dan is no stranger to podcasts, nor speaking publicly about his relationship to cannabis, so I got to lean on his experience. He's a senior editor and shareholder of Skunk Magazine, as well as a regular contributor and featured expert on cannabis cultivation and culture for Skunk and Grow Magazine, both nationally respected publications. 
His work has also been featured numerous times in High Times, as well as in a segment of the Al Jazeera English Network show Front Lines in 2010, a story about Proposition 19 in California. Yeah, you got it. Dan has been in the industry a long time. He's what they call an OG. Under Proposition 215, Dan managed collective operations on several of the largest outdoor medical gardens in Northern California. He founded the Ganja Rebel Seeds Collective in 2011 and was the first seed company to offer seeds to patients through retail dispensaries in Humboldt County. He was also an original consultant to one of the first political action committees representing small, craft, legacy cannabis farmers in Northern California, what was known as the Humboldt Growers Association, which later merged with a Mendocino County group becoming the Emerald Growers Association and has since become the CGA, or the California Growers Association, one of the largest, most well-known and influential cannabis organizations advocating in the California State House. Through it all, Dan has also won numerous awards for his genetics, which you can learn more about in the upcoming episode. We highly recommend you stick around to listen to it, either for the first time or a second go-round. It is a powerful story of what it was like to emerge from the legacy market into the licensed market. But before you begin, almost a year has passed since we first spoke to Dan, and Rebel Grown is now on the cusp of harvesting its second outdoor crop here in Vermont. We caught up with Dan, and he gave us this update on both his business and his social equity status. Enjoy the show. This is Dan from Rebel Grown with an update from the Northeast Kingdom. Season two has been an interesting one. We've basically had some of the wettest and uh, worst summer weather that Vermont's had and any memories that I have going back, you know, 23 years. A lot of outdoor farmers are really struggling. All that moisture and your plants can't dry out. There's farms that have been flooded and lost their entire crops. Fortunately, we invested in a vegetable bed former and we made all of our rows of plants elevated so that Basically, when it has rain, the water kind of runs down the the aisles in the rows. Because of that, we've been able to survive, and uh, we have a lot of exciting genetics. We're not going to have as much herb as we had hoped because of this crazy weather we've had this season, but we will have a lot of beautiful herb. One of my favorite parts about this season is that we were able to release our clone nursery in the spring and work with a lot of the new adult-use dispensaries and also several of the medical dispensaries throughout Vermont to offer our genetics and some of the selections that we keep to home growers throughout the state. It's really cool to grow weed and have a cultivation license for production, but offering plants to home growers is a much deeper connection that is something that I've always loved. I also want to share an update on my social equity status. Originally, I was denied for social equity, even though I believed that I met all of the criteria and requested an appeal. This was back in late uh, July of 2022. Here we are a little over a year later, and my appeal is progressing. It's the first appeal that the CCB has done, so it's a brand new process for them that they're figuring out what the law requires them to do, which is they hire an administrative law judge to hear the CCB head attorney's arguments and to hear my arguments. It's a, it's a really interesting situation. You know, the way I see it, I'm technically a social equity recipient in California for several years, and I qualify because I have a cannabis arrest, a cannabis felony, and have been incarcerated for cannabis, and also because I lived in Humboldt County for five of the last 10 years before cannabis was legalized in California, and that is an area that was disproportionately targeted by cannabis prohibition. 
Now, the Vermont regulations read a little bit different. But either way, you know, after very carefully scrutinizing these regulations before I applied for social equity status, myself and two different attorneys agreed that I was a shoe in for it. So I was really surprised when I was originally rejected. The law basically says in Vermont that if you have been incarcerated for cannabis, you meet one of the criteria. I was incarcerated, but according to the CCB, I was not incarcerated enough. Um, the CCB is also trying to have the laws changed to specify that incarceration cannot be pretrial and that it needs to be a post-judgment sentence from a judge after a conviction and that they would also like it to be for a lengthy term and it needs to be a prison and not a jail. However, the current law doesn't say any of that, that it's proposed regulations that has not become final. And even if they did get that approved, my application was submitted before any of that was the law. The process for the appeal is after the state eventually hired an administrative law judge about nine or 10 months after my request for an appeal, I am to submit a question of my list of arguments where the CCB had violated the laws as written. And there are one of seven different types of things that you point out that they did. I realize that I'm going up against the CCB's head attorney, so I retain an attorney myself, one who I thought would be a good fit for this case. And I was very clear with the CCB that this is not an issue about money to me. This is a matter of, of principle. And I feel an entitlement to social equity status because of everything that I've been through in my life and all the hardships that I've faced due to cannabis prohibition. And also because of after carefully scrutinizing their laws, the way that their laws read, I, I clearly do qualify. And I feel that their denial of me is, is arbitrary. Um, and maybe it's because I'm a type five license. Maybe it's because I have a farm in California. They've made some pretty interesting statements. After my lawyer and I submitted our response in questions, the CCB then had a certain amount of time to have their response to our questions and the argument. At the last minute, they requested more time, which we happily granted. It turns out that this Wednesday will be my next hearing where the administrative law judge will go over both arguments that he's written. We'll have a chance to make an oral argument and then he can either make a determination or at that point he could ask for an additional hearing where he has more time to make a decision. If he decides in the CCB's favor, then I have the option of going to the Vermont Supreme Court. The truth is, it's not that I'm trying to be difficult, but this is a moral decision for me. It's just a simple right from wrong. With, within the universe, there's right and there's wrong. And I believe that I'm right based on the law that is written and on a moral principle. And so I'm willing to take it as far as it has to go for, for all fairness. Welcome back. Our guest is Dan Pomerantz, a renowned cannabis industry expert and longtime legacy operator. With expertise in breeding and genetics, Dan has created dozens of proprietary cannabis cultivars under the Rebel Grown brand. These genetics have won dozens of awards dating back to 2011, most notably the Emerald Cup's coveted Breeders' Cup Award in 2022 and 2018. 
Rebel Grown has its roots in California's historic Humboldt County. It is a state-licensed cultivation operation with social equity status. This year, Rebel Grown received its license to cultivate in Vermont. Dan has applied for social equity status here as well. His application was originally denied, and he is now navigating the appeals process. This is yet another example of the differences in definitions and regulations across state programs. We spoke to Dan about his history in both the legacy and licensed markets, and his circuitous path from his home state of Massachusetts to Vermont, California, and back to Vermont, the state he now calls home. This is a personal story as much as it is a professional one. Dan's relationship with cannabis started young, a fact that may make some listeners uncomfortable. It also highlights some of the tough choices that individuals face in the legacy market when they make the decision to break the law. These choices can compromise personal integrity, safety, and relationships. Before we take you into our conversation with Dan, a quick note on what we mean when we identify the legacy market. By definition, legacy refers to the historical people and situations that existed in the past, during the decades of prohibition, which still exist in some states, at the federal level, and in many countries throughout the world, the underground market for cannabis has been traditionally referred to as the black market. This terminology has its roots in racist belief systems and is being weeded out of the contemporary cannabis lexicon. The term legacy market is taking its place and is sometimes referred to as the illicit market, depending on who you're talking to, the context, and the culture. A mandate of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board is to transition legacy market participants into the regulated market in order to provide legal opportunities and protections for both businesses and consumers. Great. Now that we have got that done, let's dive into our conversation with Dan. It has been edited and condensed for content and length. Take a listen. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, now you have a long history in the industry, both in the legacy market and in the licensed market, over 25 years, I believe. Um, and you now have a new business here in Vermont, uh, in the Northeast Kingdom. I want to know a little bit about you know, what started your relationship with cannabis and kind of some of the highlights on the path that led you to now. And I, I will say that I read your most recent blog on your website, and it was titled Coming Home. So I was kind of interested in that. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I got into cannabis when I was pretty young. And as a teenager, you know, just trying to kind of find my way, um, you know, I struggled with learning disabilities and, you know, school and, and things like that. And, um, when I found cannabis, I found something that really helped center me and keep me grounded. I think it just gave me the ability to kind of find myself. Um, and so I became really passionate about, you know, this is illegal and this is something that you're not supposed to do. You can get in a lot of trouble for. But that didn't make any sense to me because when I smoked it, you know, I felt more clear and more vibrant. Um, I just thought it made me a better person. And so I spent a lot of time just researching and learning everything that I could and I decided this is what I want to do with my life. And so, you know, when I was pretty young, 13, 14 years old, I kind of had to come to this critical decision of saying, well, I'm going to do this with my life, but I totally understand that it's illegal and there's a, a high risk of going to prison, being incarcerated and all the trouble that comes along with it. And so I kind of made a conscious choice at that point to pursue it, which kind of led me on a long path and a journey of um, finding my way. 13, 14, that's young, you know, like what was it, where were you in Massachusetts? Are you a Mass all yep, like me? Yeah, I grew up, I grew up outside of Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. Uh, um, what was it like there? I mean, were you, 
How did you have access, and did you have a supportive environment, you know, or were you— So uh, I didn't. Um, you know, it's like I grew up in the suburbs west of Boston. Mm. Um, it was a blue-collar area when my parents settled there in 1976. And, you know, years and years, the older generations kind of died off or couldn't afford there. It just started getting nicer and nicer. And we were kind of lower, middle-class, um, you know, kind of struggling and um, really fancy public school systems. And so you're taught, you know— play sports and this is the route that you need to take and you need to focus on school and education and go to college. And I was just more into the counterculture. I listened to a lot of of music and questioned things. You know, it's like they tell you this is the path you have to take. And I just thought about that. Like, maybe that's not my path. You know, that doesn't feel right to me. So you found a community (laughs) that supported you and you took that idea of like, I want to work Uh, in this space. What did you do next? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was just about being able to find, you know, cannabis. And at the time it was pretty dangerous, you know, being a young kid. Um, And I just kind of always made it a life goal to try to find safe sources for it. You know, and back then there was so little information in like the early to mid nineties that you could find. So there's a lot of propaganda that's out there about laced product and and things like that. And so I really just kind of focused on supply chain and learning everything that I could. Then I had these kind of magazines like High Times where you see this beautiful herb grown in Amsterdam and things like that. And just realized that's that's not what I'm seeing here. So, so it brought you to Vermont, right? I mean, your first kind of like foray into trying to make a go. Sure. So when I was 15, I got invited to visit a friend of mine in Vermont for the weekend. And I got on a bus, a Greyhound bus in South Station and headed up to Vermont, got dropped off in Montpelier. And once we kind of got through northern New Hampshire and I started seeing all these trees and mountains, you know, I was just kind of blown away and really just felt a peacefulness that I hadn't really felt ever before. And so, you know, he picks me up, you know, in an old Saab in Montpelier. And this is supposed to be the state capital, but it's this quaint little town. Everybody's friendly. Everybody waves. And man, I just really fell in in love with Vermont on that trip. And um, the story goes that he took me to a party. And, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts outside of Boston. So when I go to a party with my friends, I just, you know, you walk in the door. People are sizing you up if they don't know you. There's going to be a fight. The cops are going to come. I'm probably going to have to defend some people and fight myself. And so I'm guarded. And I go to this party and this, this guy walks over to me and he goes, I've never seen you around here before. What's your name? And I just couldn't believe that people here were actually friendly and approachable, you know? And so at that same party, I was telling my friend, you know, well, where's the weed at? You know, I've heard all this great stuff about (laughs) Uh, Vermont and it's herb and it's known for the kind bud. And so he introduced me to somebody that had some weed for sale. And he said, do you want indoor or do you want outdoor? And nobody had ever asked me that question before. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah the definitely. Stuff, the stuff that I had access to was, you know, bricked imported weed with sticks and seeds. Yeah, you never and knew what you were getting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, I was like, how do you know if it's indoor or outdoor? And right at that moment, something clicked. And I basically decided that my life's goal was one way or another, you know, finish high school, get out of Massachusetts, move to Vermont, start growing weed and trying to meet people who are involved with cannabis. Right. And you did that. I mean, you came to Vermont for a while and were in the legacy market here, correct? Yeah. So, you know, I I transitioned schools. I was expelled from different schools and switched schools six times during high school. Um, and had dropped out, went back. Um, I managed to graduate on time 
And I got a job bagging groceries. I couldn't sell weed because the cops were on to me in my town. And so I saved up my uh, cashier and grocery bagging money, and I bought some seeds from Mark Emery's catalog. Mm -hmm. And the day that I found out I was actually going to graduate school, I skipped my graduation and headed up on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so June 4th. Uh, 2000, I moved up to Vermont. Mm. And within that first few days, I was planting those seeds. And so you stayed here for a while, but then California drew you in the market that was in Humboldt County. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of a back and forth between Vermont and Massachusetts. You know, I was a young kid, didn't have a a lot of skills or education uh, or life experience. And so it was cool being on my own and just kind of exploring um, working at restaurants and just kind of meeting people. Sometimes I'd find stability in a nice place to live where I could, you know, set up some lights or, you know, have an outdoor crop. Um, and then as I got a little bit older and more mature, I started to get better and better at growing, um, better and better at lying to landlords and finding rental houses where I could, you know, grow weed in the basement and stuff like that. And the people who knew me, you know, at the time, you know, I was growing all this weed and starting to have a decent amount of it. And that's kind of what, what people knew me for. And the people who were close to me were like, listen, man, you're going to get busted. I don't want to see you go to jail. Like, you should think about going to California or Colorado or something where there's medical marijuana laws. And, you know, I was always staying on top of what's happening with cannabis activism Mm -hmm. legislation. And so I was very familiar with, with the market and industry in those places as they were evolving. And what I realized is all the best growers in the country are moving to those places. Right. And I don't want to show up and be another opportunist trying to take something. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make that transition when the time was right and I knew that I actually had value to add. Right. And that I wasn't just going to go there and fail. I was going to go there and succeed and bring benefit to the people who, who gave me a chance. So when I felt that I was ready and the kind of universe opened up an opportunity for me to go there and just do some part-time work on a farm helping out, kind of led to, you know, transitioning and, and moving there at the end of 2009, early 2010. Uh, and you stayed there for quite some time uh, and worked first in the legacy market and then transitioned over into the license market, correct? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I stayed there for the better part of 10 years. Yeah. Um, for the first two years, I never even came home. When I first moved to Humboldt County, um, I ended up in, you know, Humboldt County is the size of Rhode Island two or three times. It's a pretty large mm. area of land. And there's a lot of diverse microclimates. And it's really the epicenter and the origin of a lot of Northern California and the whole country's cannabis industry. Right. And it's, it's really, it's hard to explain it to people. So what I would tell people who visit is there's, there's no point in explaining. You got to see for yourself. Back in, in the day before we had adult use and it was the medical market, it was like, Every single person in the entire community was involved in the industry one way or the other. So, you know, in the neighborhood where I was really fortunate to settle was a really old school, really exclusive neighborhood where 100% of everybody was growing weed. Hmm. Um, And they, you know, it's like it's like a trade. I always tell people, like, if you're from a coal mining town in Pennsylvania and that's what your family's done for generations, that's that's what you know. Right. And that's kind of how cannabis farming is in those very specific regions of southern Humboldt. It's just a lifestyle for people. It's not this big, exciting thing. It's not something new. It's people live sustainably up in the hills. They grow cannabis. They homestead. You know, they support themselves, their communities. Does that really only exist there in this country? 
Are there other pockets like that? I know that Vermont has a long history of growing good cannabis, but is it multi-generational like that or not? Because we didn't have a place to kind of be. Vermont's small. There's only so many places you you can be. It's it's similar. Um, You know, Vermont was very casual with cannabis. And so a lot of people or their parents that I knew like grew a few plants in their vegetable garden and people are are pretty accepting of it. Um, But not, not in the same way. Like I can't even express how the cannabis culture was so ingrained, it, it is the community. Yeah. So back in the in the late 60s, you know, in Summer of Love, people in San Francisco, I mean, it was, it was a shit show, you know? Mm-hmm. The streets were dirty and filled with people overdosing on heroin. And a lot of people said, let's, let's get out of this congested city and go back to the land. And so a lot of people started going north. Um, and most of them stayed pretty close to the main roads, the 101. What happened is as those people started to make these little settlements up in Humboldt, Mendocino counties and, and eventually Trinity County, back then the industry there was all logging and it was fishing. And so you had your big, burly, you know, rednecks and some real old school hillbilly, you know, California families. And then you have these young hippies that are getting settled. And what they did to survive is they formed these communities. So, mm-hmm. you know, who's good at building? Okay, who's good at growing vegetables? Who, who's great with children and, and teaching kids. Right. And so it just so happened that to get back to the land, one of the things they all shared in common was smoking cannabis. So they grew it. Turns out they could make money selling it into the Bay Area. And so it was just one of the ways that they got year to year, made their land payments and supported their families. But once it really started to grow, um, all these regions um, and what you now have is like Appalachians, uh, they had to really form communities. So the first things that they did is they formed their fire districts and their school systems, right? It was all funded by the money that came from growing cannabis. Wow. You know, so yeah, they I don't said, think a, pe- a lot of people understand that, you right. know, how much it was really... That's the, the whole community was built by cannabis. Yeah. Before then, it was nothing. It was just some loggers and very, yeah. very few people. So all of a sudden, you have this one neighborhood here, and they go, well, we need to volunteer and create a fire district so we can you know, protect all of our structures and all of our homesteads and settlements. And so the, the map of Southern Humboldt, if you look at the fire districts, those are the Appalachians. And so once they had the fire districts established, they had the food co-ops. Actually, the food co-ops came first, which was taking turns about who can grow what and who can go to the Bay Area for supplies. And, you know, those turned into these vegetable and food cooperatives so all these little communities could be fed through the winter. Um, And so they did the same thing with the school systems, you know, and that way all their kids were able to get a good education. They could be protected from fires. They had food to eat. And all of that was funded from growing cannabis. And so you cut your teeth here in Vermont. You kind of honed your craft out there in California in the Emerald Triangle. And like, what were the big, you know, what did you learn about cultivation out there? You're an outdoor grower. That's where your heart is. You are a regenerative grower. And so um, talk to me about that and how what you learned out there translates to how you're now growing here in Vermont. Yeah, where, where to even start? You know, basically I went out to the Mecca of Cannabis to learn from the masters. But it turns out that I had a lot of focus and a lot of experience on the East Coast, and I actually brought a lot to the table for them. So I've been making my own organic soils since I was 14 and had really been studying up on my craft. You know, and Were they doing that out there too, or was it more conventional farming in a, a natural it, setting? It's both. And, you know, to be honest, I know that everyone says cannabis farmer this. I really like to call it cannabis grower, mm-hmm. especially in those senses, because, you know, farming is really about efficiently using the land and while we do use, you know, permaculture to grow back then, it was about not being detected by law enforcement and working with what you have. So the gardens back then, they used to be these 
pretty small mom and pop operations where they would tie the branches down in their vegetable gardens so that the plants couldn't be seen from helicopters. They would even get plastic flowers and things like that to put in there. Um, And so I think that I was able to bring a little bit of new age thinking to what some of the old timers were doing um, and, you know, be more efficient with what I'm putting in my soil, why I'm putting in my soil. And so out there, what you have is you have these mom and pop growers who grow really natural cannabis, natural cannabis and holes in the ground that has really efficient water use and it's clean and it's amazing. And then you have a whole generation of guys who all they know is these are the chemicals you put on the plants and this is how you make the money. Um, And it's just, you know, not so much about the culture, but more about, you know, making the money and Mm -hmm. and this is what you're Taking instead of giving. There's kind of a balance of that. But I was able to show some of the old school guys that, hey, listen, you put a little bit of extra money into the high quality worm castings and compost, or if you manage the inputs that are going in and creating more biodiversity in your soil, you don't don't need to use the Maxi and the Grow More. You don't need to do any of that. You can use water more efficiently. And all of a sudden we're growing weed that's way better, way more efficient, way more bud to leaf ratio. Better for the environment. Better, much better yeah. for the environment. So I, I was able to have a pretty big impact in a really unique way. And the other thing is all the neighborhoods and, you know, Southern Humboldt versus Northern Humboldt, Mendocino, I ended up in really one of the more unique places that was known for being more outlaw, more brazen, more badass. And um, So that must be where Rebel Grown was born. right yeah I mean mean, so I mean it started there and so how did that start how did that brand start in that that, well the first person that I worked for was a really interesting person in the community his parents had founded a really unique uh, healing arts and massage school and so a lot of the people in that community had been students there in the 80s and 90s Um, a lot of them came up there to study massage and realized that a lot of their neighbors were growing weed all over the hills and they ended up trimming for them. And a lot of those folks ended up owning their own properties and and being growers. And Mm. he was a really forward thinking person about legalization. Back in 2010, California actually had the first adult use bill, Prop 19, which which failed. And so I got a really um, insider look at some of the early political action committees trying to support the mom and pop, you know, lifestyle and make sure that small craft, you know, legacy growers had a place in the future. Yeah. And can I interrupt you right there? Like, just so that our audience understands, too, what are we talking about when we talk about mom and pop in terms of size, you know, and craft? Like, is there a definition for that? There's no definition. You know, back then, we'll put it this way. So I was working for the larger growers in the community who were growing, you know, 400 to 1,000 pounds per farm. Gotcha. And that was huge. And a lot of the mom and pop people were really scared about having that in their community. So mom and pop might be that you know, you and your partner, or, you know, you and your wife or you and your best friend, you know, you grow enough weed to get by till the next year. Yeah. You know, 50, 50 pounds is 100 pounds is a great season. How many plants is that? And what's like the size of the land that it, that it takes depends. up? I think a lot of people don't know. They don't yeah. have any ideas. People haven't even seen a pot plant before. There's, there's all types of different ways of, of growing it. So back then when it was more old school, it's like some people did grow larger plants that you could expect three or four or five pounds off of. Yeah. And some people would put, you know, many plants closer together in, in small raised beds. Um, so it all depends. But, you know, back then for the average landowner in that community, 50 or 100 pounds meant they were going to make their land payments. They were going to feed their families. Maybe they'd get a little vacation over the winter right. and they'd be able to pay to do it again the next year. Right. So 
you started there in that community. And so you met this this person who was connected to the massage center who helped get Rebel Grown off the ground? or So his, it's a long story. It's a very, very long story. So we'll so tell the short his, version. His, his, <laughs> his family had founded a school in Santa Cruz, and they brought it to the mountains there. And it was really uh, involved with the Native American church and really deep, deep spiritual connections. So really interesting. And he was forward thinking and wanting to protect mom and pop culture into the future. Um, And what ended up happening was I wanted to go my way because most of those growers would never speak publicly about cannabis. Most of the people that I knew who were growing the most weed, they didn't even have a medical recommendation. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't even have a collective. And I said, well, hey, the whole reason I came to California is to not have the risk of going to jail. I want to do this legally. And so what I did was... Um, I had a big impact on the cultivation that we did. We had Jorge Cervantes, you know, come out and film a DVD. And a lot of the people in the community saw the work that my girlfriend and I did. And so I had, you know, different job offers. And one person basically said, if you can do for me what you did for him, I'd like to make you an offer. And that guy said, you know, I've been here for 26 years and I've never seen plants that big or that, that healthy. And so what I did was I leased a property from him and I started a collective of my own and started to network with dispensaries in Humboldt County and in the Bay Area and sign up members to my collective so I could grow more plants for more people. And the collective was uh, a legal term too? Like that was allowed underneath the medical law in California? So under Proposition 215, the way that you could share or distribute cannabis was anybody who is a member of a collective can kind of all share together. And technically it had to be a nonprofit, but you could bill people for your time, for your labor and for your expense. So if I were to work with a dispensary, I sign up for their collective, they sign up for my collective, maybe they give me some type of cultivation agreement contract to grow for their patients. All of a sudden, you know, I'm working with the biggest dispensaries in the Bay Area. They have over 250,000 patients. I can grow unlimited amounts of weed as far as California law goes. Wow. That's a lot has changed since that time, right? I think, or no, or that, I mean, in terms of the law in California, I mean, one of the things that I hear a lot about is that as the as legalization actually happened for adults in California, it really... Um, put a chokehold on the family farms that you're talking about, um, that they couldn't actually exist under those new regulations. And a lot of people ended up moving back this way, right? Or into other states just because they couldn't survive anymore. We could go on for hours about how poorly um, Prop 64, uh, Prop 64 should be the example for the rest of the world about how not to regulate cannabis. They took a craft industry with tens and tens of thousands of participants who worked to support themselves and feed their families and has completely devastated those tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And they opened up the doors for large corporations and a lot of wealth and people who come from outside the industry who know almost nothing about it to take over. And even for those large, gigantic entities that are funded by multinational, you know, um, conglomerates, they can't make any money either with the way that it's taxed. It's it's just completely insane. Yes. Um, There's a few people who have a niche or something specialty. Like, for instance, we breed all our own genetics. We grow regenerative cannabis. We have a lot of accolades that go with it. Um, there's there's a lot of unique things, and that's that's how I'm able to survive. You know, I still have my farm there. We have two state licenses. My whole thing about coming back to Vermont is the first day or first weeks that I was in California, I thought to myself and I said to my girlfriend, this is way crazier and way more amazing than I had imagined. Think, what's a pot farm look like? Well, I didn't think it was going to be this amazing, but I never felt 
rooted. In California. I have this yeah. one community in the Palo Verde where my farm is, and it's a sacred place and surrounded by nature, and I love being there, and I love the community of Southern Humboldt and Garberville, and I love Santa Cruz and little things, but it's not, it's not home. I would always think, you know, I grew up looking at the stars from the East Coast, and so I'm looking at the stars to the left of me out to the West. All of a sudden, it's the opposite, and I always felt the way that I looked at the stars from California didn't feel right. And so I always had this desire to grow weed on the East Coast since yeah. I was 14, 15 years old. And as there were laws changing, you know, for instance, you know, hemp becoming legal in Vermont, I, I just decided that I had to find a way to participate. If they're going to legalize hemp, I got to get in on this. I got to. So you came back. I mean, so it was like a, a bunch of reasons. I mean, there was the, the rules changing in California that made it difficult. It was just your natural draw to want to come back to Vermont because you loved being here. And it was also that the emerging market was... Everybody sure. thought was on the horizons back there for 2018. We yeah. had to wait longer, but... It was, it was a lot of different reasons. You know, I, I got my property in Vermont in 2012, and the whole goal was to have a retirement place that I could kind of build out my dream house on at some point, um, you know, maybe raise a family on, um, build a business and have something surrounded by nature that I could share with people. And so I had this property, but I didn't get to live on it for years or even visit it, you know, for years. Um, I tried to make a move back to Vermont in 2016 and I did a back and forth. I would do, you know, three weeks in Vermont with my kids and my, my family. And then I would do, you know, two or three weeks in California trying to run my brand and had partners running my farm in California. And it was a lot. And, um, especially with young kids. Yep. It's not for anybody, but with a a growing family, it's really difficult. Yeah. It's, it's tough because, you know, I don't want to be the type of dad who like your kids are older and they don't know you because you were, you know, a business person and, and weren't around. And so I've always made it a goal to be really present, but the only thing I know how to do is sell weed and grow weed and mm-hmm. talk about cannabis and create some motivation and inspiration through it. And that belonged on, on the West Coast at the time. So I did, I did the back and forth for a while. Um, and then I went back to California with the family until I really felt ready to come back to Vermont in a way that I could support my growing brand and business and farm in California, but also have opportunity on the East Coast that I could kind of build towards. So you must have some good people in California. <laughs> yep. It's hard to run a cannabis business, and it's hard to trust people to run your cannabis business the way you want to. So that's good that you've got some good people out there that are allowing you to be here now pretty much full-time, right? To yeah. Be, I mean, we just launched here on October 1st. Uh, Rebel Grown was one of the first licensed uh, cultivation licenses here. You're Tier 5, right? Yep. Mixed. So Mixed. that means that you can grow indoor and outdoor. You're primarily outdoor. And tier five, what's the definition for tier five? Sure. How big is so that for people to Tier get five there? allows me to have up to 2,500 outdoor plants or 20,000 square feet. And they decided that one outdoor plant equates to about eight square feet. So it's, it's a bit confusing and the state is still kind of working through mm-hmm. it. And then for indoor, I'm allowed up to 1,000 square feet of flowering production. I, I haven't built that out. I mean, I don't even smoke indoor flower, although I do believe you can grow some really great organic living soil indoor. And, and I plan on doing some small batches, but all the indoor space that I have, I'm using for my mother plants, storing my genetics, you know, clones and things like yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, so I, I moved back, I moved my family back full time in early um, 2009. 19, and I did the back and forth before COVID. And then during COVID, everything just kind of worked out where I was able to have enough stability in, in California to stay in mm. Vermont. And, you know, my partner actually went to college in, in Vermont, you know, who the guy who, who runs my farm in California. Yeah. So oh, nice. lucky to have him. Yeah. He's an incredible grower. Um, 
And yeah, once once Vermont started to roll out the regulations, I just made it a life goal to find a way to get a license one way or the other. So it's a really exciting opportunity. We'll be right back after a short break. Hey there, it's me again with a friendly reminder to follow our lovely little show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're really digging what you hear, like the show, review it, and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Take care, and thanks for listening. So you got the license. Um, tell me a little bit about how that process went. I know we had a, a nice conversation earlier this week about your goal to be certified as a social equity uh, application. Tell us a little bit about how Vermont defines that. And I know that you're, you are a social equity application out in California, but you weren't certified here. Right. What so happened there? It's interesting. So the, the process in Vermont, they, I would say the CCB tried really hard and that they have really good intentions. And I think Vermont is the most progressive state, more for the people than any place else in this country. Either way, the the rollout for cannabis is a disaster. But what I would have really liked is if they had said, here's the deal. We're going to first open up license applications for cultivators. Put your license in within this window. We'll process it. Outdoor cultivators. Next, indoor cultivators. Next, manufacturers so that we can process and manufacture all that stuff. And then last dispensaries. Right. And for they dis- kind of did that, but it was really com- well, it was really compacted because they were delayed you know, in getting set up and COVID and all that stuff. I, I mean, guess. I know those are excuses. They, they were but- understaffed. <laughs> they were understaffed to yeah. process stuff and it's all new and the, a lot of the people didn't even understand their own regulations. Yes. And if they had said that, okay, here's all the dispensaries. If you want to apply, apply within this one month window. All the people who get their applications in within that one month, we will take the next several months to process it and then give you an opening date so you can all open the same day. They should have done the same thing for the cultivation. And so, like I said, I'm fortunate to have the license and it's a great opportunity, but it's been messy. A little, a little (laughs) more clarity um, would have been helpful. Yeah. And And so, what happened? So, with the social equity? Well, with the social equity. So, in California, I'm a social equity recipient. You know, basically, you know, Humboldt County because of its crime statistics and its cannabis prohibition um, and all the issues that have come from that. At the time, anybody who lived in Humboldt County for five years before weed was legalized, you just get social equity. Gotcha. My social equity application in California wasn't even based on that, even though that's where I have a residence in California. It was based on a previous uh, arrest and conviction for cannabis possession, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I had to work with the California... Um, Uh, food and agricultural department and people who work for the cannabis regulatory department there and go back and share all these court documents. And they were like, cool, you're approved. This happened to you. So why, why, what's holding up a social equity status? Oh yeah. So anyway, in Vermont, they basically determined that because I was in jail and incarcerated pretrial and was bailed out that I wasn't incarcerated long enough. And so it's funny because 
I sent them my sentencing guidelines and section whatever of my sentencing said to be given credit for time served, you know, but it wasn't long enough. They basically said that uh, because I wasn't additionally sentenced to any incarceration besides pretrial incarceration, that it it didn't count. And so I thought about it and I read the regulations and I said, well, actually, if you're a person from a socially disadvantaged community because of cannabis prohibition, you qualify. And I've lived in Humboldt County for more than five of the last 10 years, which qualifies for Vermont because Humboldt County has some of the highest poverty rates, housing issues, and crime rates. And all of that is proven to be because of cannabis prohibition. But I'm currently appealing the status. They told me they're going to get me an administrative law judge who's basically going to act as an arbitrator. And it's like, get me in front of that guy. And if they really think that I was not harmed by cannabis prohibition, where I lived in Humboldt County, you know, it's like they're yeah, out you of have their... a conviction though too. I don't, I don't get that part. Which well, we won't, we won't go fully into that. Te- te- we... Technically, my conviction was eventually sealed and dismissed, oh, okay. but I pleaded guilty to a felony, and I have all that information right. which I shared with them. And so, it's very important to you, and that's what's coming across, you know. And we talked about this on the phone the other day. You know, one of the benefits of social equity status is that. You have prioritization in the application process, which you've already got your license based on your merits, um, and you also have reduced fees. And so, but that's not what it is about for you. You know, it's, it's not, not about, about the that. money. It's, it's about, about the, the principle. Yeah. It's about the principle of, of right from wrong. I at a young kid, as a young kid, I had to decide to be a criminal my whole life. And so the way that I live is like a criminal. You know, yeah. most people that I know who've been involved with weed since they were that young have been robbed, have been to jail, have gone through a lot of stuff. And what I did is I created a way of living to eliminate liabilities, living like a ghost. And that's yeah. what I did in Vermont for years. I'd, I'd rent a house, I'd grow weed in the woods and in the basement. I'd lie to everybody about what I did for a living and where I lived uh, and stayed very, very secretive. And so- But now you don't have to. Now I don't have to, but you know, you have like a PTSD about yes. it because my whole entire life, everything has always been a secret, you know? And so now when you're talking about it with other people, whether it's like, you know, podcasts like this or just catching up socially or, you know, with other parents that your kids go to school with, I'm super weird about stuff because I'm used to lying about what I do for a living and where I live and all these things. Let's be honest, like the reason I did that was fear of incarceration, right? There's a lot of people I know who've done a lot of time incarcerated. And you know what? I was pretty tough when I was young. I I think I'm pretty thick skinned now, but I really did not want to go to prison. My uncle did a lot of time in prison, you know, and I really didn't want to go. And, you know, maybe I would have been less paranoid and had a different lifestyle. But if I wasn't so careful with that paranoia, I probably could have gotten busted or robbed, you know? Which... I'm glad that you weren't. I'm glad that we're able to sit here today and talk about it as something that that didn't happen. Um, So Rebel Grown, your product's in stores right now. Um, And so how many genetics you got going on up there? And what's your your vision for the... I guess I'm asking you a lot of questions right now. No, no, that's okay. So (laughs) So. (laughs) for... Yeah. So, you know, basically we have three outdoor fields. Um, They were previously used as as hemp fields. And so what's really cool is I've been building organic living soil since 2018 on those sites. And, you know, the larger one was grazing land for horses and and cows before. So it's really nice, rich, beautiful living soil that we've been developing. Um, And this first year starting late, you know, we we grew mostly my genetics and some other popular stuff. Um, So that's the thing with Rebel Grown. What I always wanted to do was be a genetics company. So it's like a lifestyle brand, 
you know, really just living cannabis as a lifestyle, mm-hmm. breathing it. And that's that's what I know. That's who I am. And then the genetic side of it was I was always on the search for the best weed my entire life. And then I realized that the coolest thing in the world for me was to create my own genetics and do something different than what everyone else was doing. And so it's not about necessarily being better than others, but it's my personal journey of creating new genetics and finding things that I really appreciated and got to enjoy and then sharing those parts of my journey with other people. So we have a lot of really great genetics. Most of the stuff I've been working on for, you know, up to 12 years in California. Some of it's really cool and based off of seed lines that I started growing in Vermont in 2007, 2008. Um, And then over the last three years, I've been doing some smaller selective breeding projects in Vermont. Uh, This year we went all out and it was really great because I was able to have the CCB come and visit three times and show them my whole breeding program and explain to them, you know, just be very open about it. Like, I'm not exactly sure, does this count towards my cultivation space? Is it nursery? But yeah, we have dozens and dozens of varieties of really exciting genetics that are now all new Vermont selections for hardiness and resistance and color and, and flavor. Just yesterday, I actually harvested the rest of our seed crop from this year. Uh, so we'll have seeds available in dispensaries awesome. throughout Vermont within the next two weeks, hopefully. And that's the funny thing is like my job is to grow weed and sell weed to people, but I, I really care about hooking, hooking people up with seeds. <laughs> yes. It's the seeds, you know, that in, I, I guess I'll backtrack in, in California, the way that I really built a brand was by, you know, having seeds available at dispensaries. So it's like I would wholesale to brokers and collective members and dispensaries, but I'd never get recognition for my weed. And I I hated that. I hated not knowing who's going to smoke all this weed and thinking, well, tens of thousands of people are going to smoke this weed. I'm not going to get any feedback. And so when I started making seeds and breeding seeds and getting feedback from the cultivation community, it was awesome. You know, it's like I'd go to the local dispensary, I'd sell seeds, and I ended up developing a whole community of people that helped me start my brand. And I had you know, families with three generations that would buy seeds every year. There's one family like, you know, the father, the grandfather, the mom and the son, and they all had their different favorites from my lines. I started the brand as a seed company, you know, in Humboldt County, we were the first seed company to be available in dispensaries there in 2011. And so are they, so let me ask you a couple of questions here, just so our listeners can understand too. So are they feminized seeds? Are they how many are like F one? Like what kind of sure. seeds so, are these, so, and and what are you charging for them? I'm curious. Sure. So we do both uh, feminized seeds and photoperiodic. The photoperiodic it just means that it flowers based on you know the seasonal changes and the light cycle and photo period. Um, and there's regular male and female. Uh, the feminized obviously are all going to be females, yeah. or at least you know one out of every three or 4,000, you know, might have some intersex or hermaphrodite traits. Um, but yeah, so we have, we have a ton of different varieties that we're sorting through and harvesting right, right now that are drying. We have stuff going into packaging in the next week or two, and they'll come in packs of 12 seeds. I think we only have six feminized varieties and some hybrids, but there's like, I basically told the CCB, I'm like, I'll keep track of what I harvest for the seed stuff because there's dozens of varieties. We'll probably have a main staple, 12 to 16 things that we'll have on the menu. A lot of it's just going to be for my personal collection for future breeding Mm and R&D and exploration. But what's cool is, yeah, it's it's like genetics that I've developed in California, but selected for Vermont. Vermont. So it's the way that I do that, you know, I mean, it's a it's a whole nother long <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, no, we on don't its have own. time for that. We'll we'll welcome you back to talk about that. So let's get people knowing uh, where your product is and what you have. And I want I do want to talk just real briefly about your vision because I think it's really cool. So you've got flour out on the market under your own brand, but you're also selling in bulk to people who want to 
uh, white label. You've sure. got pre-rolls out there. You're going to have seeds in a couple of weeks out in the market. You sell clones. Yep, all um, that. Um, so we have our stickers just came in for our branded flower jars. Uh, so Monday we should have our double OG chem going into jars, and then we should have three or four varieties a week later. And then really processing, we're understaffed with processing. Everybody so mo- is. <laughs> most of our best wheat isn't even going to come out till I'm sure after New Year's. Right. Um, you can find our bulk flower in flora and series as of right now. Um, pre-rolls just got delivered to a few spots I know Ceres and Flora are going to have the pre-rolls. And then really it's just about how fast can we make the pre-rolls and put them in the tubes and get our stickers and get them delivered. So we've got great relationships with uh, the Bud Barn in Brattleboro. We're waiting to get fulfillment with Mountain Girl. Um, The Winooski Organics guys are are homies, and we're excited to have our product there. Uh, Juniper Lane, really amazing female-owned dispensary in Bennington, is opening next Wednesday. We're hoping to get an order delivered to them in time for that. Um, And basically, once I can get things a little bit dialed with the co-packing and the processing and organizing of our crop and all the track and trace with the state, we hope to have a menu available and be in every single dispensary, you know, within the next one to two months. How many employees you got? So there's there's two people uh, that help me grow the weed. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, a third person who's been, you know, part-time as needed. Uh, right now we have four people who are kind of processing, bucking, and starting to trim. I'd, I'd like to bring on six to 12 people full-time processing and trimming throughout the winter. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, as, as we grow the business, we'll see because sky's kind of the limit in terms of if we can sell all this product and it's in demand, I want to go to the state when we're ready in a year or two and say, we need to grow more. We need more space. Let me have another half acre. You know, let me grow some more weed. And is that allowed or is that something that's going to need to be changed in the law? Because that's kind of like how I want to wrap it up. We're getting up closer sure. to our time here. Like, what what do you want to do here in Vermont? And are you able to do it now or do we need to advocate for it yeah, at the state house? I think, I think Vermont's on the right track. Start slow and, and earn it, right? And so I don't want to grow more weed than I know I can sell and I don't want to be greedy. What I'd like to do is show a business model that's in demand and show the state in a year or two, here's how much I grew and look, I sold it and people want more. They I want more than I have. And so look how sustainable I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any carbon footprint with my outdoor cultivation. I'm sequestering carbon. So right. let me take this plot right here. That's perfect for it. And let me put in another half acre when I get to that point that I actually have the demand for the product. And so let me grow my, or, my business naturally and organically. Right. And um, you, you also want to eventually be able to invite people onto your farm. So that means agritourism and selling from the farm, kind of like Farmgate. Yeah. So, that's not allowed right now, right? So that's something that we need to you know, work I'm, on. I'm not really sure if it is and it isn't because I have a couple different properties and what I'd like to do is have a retail on site. I'd like, I'd like to have like a, an ecotourism event center similar to that healing arts school that I had talked about in my neighborhood in California, which is called the Hartwood Institute, if anybody would like to check it out. Um, you know, I, I picture having a main lodge where you come and you check in and you can book or, or, you know, get the keys to your cabin or whatever, or sign up for any classes that you want, whether it's, you know, cannabis cloning or a guided tour of my breeding program for that year, or maybe it's, you know, morning yoga and stretching or healthy cooking classes. And then I figure attached to that lodge would have the retail dispensary where you can buy all the cannabis products 
products, but also apparel and, you know, head shop, you know, smoking accessories, cool stuff like that. Have a little pre-made food, get your Caesar salad, your turkey sandwich. And then- You got it all figured out. (laughs) Attached to that, I'd like to have, picture like a summer camp dining hall with a stage for like a talent show. And that way we could do events, we could have, you know, um, you know, speakers, we could do music and entertainment, all types of educational things and have kind of like family style, you know, dining throughout really kind of create a sense of community where you're forced to interact with the other people staying there and get to know each other. That sounds awesome. And it's really what I love about it. It's it's kind of like what we're doing at High Fidelity, or at least what we're talking about. It's like that intersection of like cannabis, the arts and integrative self-care. You want to do it all there. Yoga, healthy diet and the music. I think that's terrific. And so we'll be rooting for you. Yeah. (laughs) Cannabis, it doesn't need to be the whole focal point of it. It can be the connector. It can be the catalyst that brings it all together. Love it. Awesome. Well, we're going to have to stop there. I'm getting the high side from Will, our sound engineer. Dan, it was awesome to talk to you today. I feel like we didn't even like begin to cover all the topics that I want to talk <laughs> about with you. So we're going to have to have you back. Sure. So thanks for being here. I really appreciate you driving down from the Northeast Kingdom. It's not a, you know, a, a stone's throw. It's a bit of a jog. So sure. thanks for doing it. Best of luck to you. We're going to be looking for your products out there continuing the market. And we'll talk soon. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5et.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.